Brother Brian Berkeley read from the Word of God in Matthew chapter 2. If you'll have your Bibles open there, it would be very helpful. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell just a little different perspective about the life of Christ. Matthew begins with the Annunciation to Mary, with the uh, amazing lineage of Christ, tracing the ancestry of Christ down through Joseph. Now Joseph was the foster father of the Lord. His real father was the Heavenly Father. This was purposely done because in a human level, Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. And Joseph traced his lineage back through Solomon to David and back to Adam. When you come to Luke, the lineage is a little different. The lineage is traced from Adam down through David and then rather than going through Solomon, who was David's son, the king, Luke traces the lineage through Nathan, another son of David, and comes down to Hela, the father of Mary. Now in the text it says the father of Joseph, because that was the customary way to put it. They did not usually recognize the mother's father, but rather her husband's and the mother's husband's father. That's a little bit difficult for us to understand because we don't live in an age like that, but that's the difference in those two lineages. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now when Herod heard this, he and all Jerusalem were troubled. Herod had no idea, and remember that Herod was an insane and jealous man. He had murdered his own wife and her mother. He had murdered three of his sons. Herod was so insane and so jealous and so suspicious when he became 70, he said, I'm going to have to die now. And I know nobody will care about my death. There won't be any weeping over that. So I want our officials to arrest the most distinguished men in Judea. Round up 70 of them. Put them in prison. These are elite men, businessmen, rulers. And he said, when I die, my last order is for you to execute them because people will weep over their death. They won't weep over my death. Now, that's the kind of crazy man he was. So is it any wonder when the wise men came to Jerusalem and said, where is he that is born king? 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 I'm the only king. King Herod. Now, king Herod was an Edumean, half Jew, but basically an Edumean which means he was a descendant of the Edomites. Some historians have said Herod was the last of the Edomites. You remember the Edomites stood on the other side in the book of Obadiah, and when 
Babylon came in to destroy Jerusalem and Judea, the Edomites laughed. And when some of the Jews would try to escape, the Edomites would capture them and torture them and then place them back in the hands of the Babylonians. And Obadiah wrote a terrible edict against the Edomites. And Herod was an Edomite. The Jews hated him. And he hated the Jews. But he had been appointed to be the king in that area by Caesar Augustus. And so somehow he must get along with the Jews. And so when he came to power, the temple that had been rebuilt under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, under the edict of Cyrus, king of Persia, Herod saw that it was in disrepair, so he tore it down. And he tried to read or get the scribes to read about the original temple that Solomon had built, and he decided he'd outdo it. And he built a beautiful, beautiful temple for the Jews. Now, he hated the Jews. He did this to try to get along with them, to try to curry their favor. And so that temple that was there when Jesus was here was magnificent in all of its glory. That temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But now the wise men come. And I want to ask three things this morning. The question is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? To some, he is a legend. To others, he's still that babe in a manger. What is he to you? Let's think for a moment a little bit about the history. Bethlehem had a long history. It was there that Jacob had buried Rachel and set up a pillar of memory beside her grave. It was there that Ruth had lived when she married Boaz, and from Bethlehem Ruth could see the land of Moab, her native land across the Jordan River. But above all, Bethlehem was the home and the city of David. It was for the water of the well of Bethlehem that David longed when he was hunted as a fugitive upon the hills. In later days, we read that Rehoboam fortified the town of Bethlehem but in the history of Israel and to the minds of the people, Bethlehem was uniquely the city of David. It was from the line of David that God was to send the great deliverer of the people. As the prophet Micah wrote, But thou Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. It was in Bethlehem, David's city, that the Jews expected the great David, one greater than David, but with the lineage of David to sit on the throne of his father. Justin Martyr, one of the greatest of the early fathers, he lived about 150 AD. In discussing in some of his writings where Jesus was born, came to the outskirts of the little village of Bethlehem. It's set on sort of a cliff. Out there are the shepherd's fields and the, the sort of the ground slopes upward. And the houses were built along that cliff and there were caves under the house. And Justin Martyr, in his writing, said Jesus was born in that cave. And he, he pointed out the cave. 
If you should go to Jerusalem today or to Bethlehem today, you would find the church of the nativity built over where they say Jesus was born. And you go down, down, down into a lower part, sort of a cave-like area, and you see a star. And there, there's a little manger, and they say that's where Jesus was born. It may well be. Perhaps the Lord has allowed us to know where that was. There are many, many things in the Holy Land that we do not know for sure, but perhaps that's one thing. He was not born really in a manger with hay all around it, unless they used hay in the cave. And that's very possible because the cattle came in there for protection. And they had to eat something. And so when you see tonight reenacted in this drama, the little baby and Mary and Joseph in the cave-like manger with the straw all around it. You can imagine that that probably is a realistic picture. Well, the wise men came. Who were these? <clears throat> you remember that Daniel had been carried away from Jerusalem in about 590 or 585 B.C. The Assyrians had been the great world empire. They were destroyed. Before they were destroyed in 722, they took over northern Israel. And all the ten tribes of Israel went into oblivion. Nobody ever knew where they went, nor has they been heard from since. Then the Babylonians took over Assyria. And in 585, the Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem and, in, and besieged that city for two years so that the little people in that city, the Jews, their little mothers and their daddies, finally had to eat their little children to stay alive. And when some of the Jews would try to escape, the Edomites over there would capture them, send them back to the Babylonians. Well, be sure your sin will find you out. If you read the book of Daniel very carefully, you'll read that one night there was a handwriting on the wall. And the handwriting said, Meany, meany, takele you farson. Thy kingdom is divided. And that very night, the Medo-Persian Empire invaded Babylon, and Babylon fell. How about Daniel? Well, Daniel was protected by the Lord. You remember he had been in the lion's den for standing true to the Lord. He was an open disciple of the Lord God. He never tried to hide his faith. He was open with it in the streets, in his home, in the temple, wherever he went. <clears throat> and when his enemies tried to find something against him, they said, we'll find out. We'd get the king to make an edict that nobody can pray to anybody but the king. And everybody knew about it. They went along and spied on Daniel. Here was Daniel with his door open, windows open. He was bowing before the Lord facing Jerusalem. They said, that's how we'll catch him. They brought him before the king. He was given to the lions. But God protected Daniel in the lion's den. I think he made those paws his pillow. And the breath of those lions all around was so rhythmic that Daniel just went sound asleep. And the next morning when the king, scared to death that Daniel had been eaten by the lions, came and said, O oh, Daniel, is thy God able? 
And Daniel said, our God is able. And he was brought out. And Daniel was made the prime minister of the land. Not only under Nebuchadnezzar, not only under his successors, but when the Medes took over, he became the prime minister then. And when the Persians took over the media empire, he became the prime minister and he ministered in that area of the land. And incidentally, if you look at a map, that area is Iraq and Iran, right along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. That's where all this took place. And Daniel for 70 years was the prime minister. Remember, he didn't do anything privately. Everything he did was public. And so the astrologers and wise men of that day knew what Daniel said. They knew what he wrote. They read his writings. And it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And the historians of that day, including Josephus and others, say that during that period of time, there was an expectancy all over the Roman Empire that something was to happen. And even people wrote in secular stories, there's going to be somebody come from Judea that will rule the world. And these wise men had read what Daniel said. And Daniel, if you read the last part of Daniel, had given the exact time when the Messiah would come. Dating it from the edict of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem. And so on a night, they were looking up, they were astrologers. I do not know what God put in the sky. There have been all kinds of imaginative thoughts. Some say there was a conjunction of planets and Others say that in 7 BC there was some strange uh, lighting in the, in the skies. That may well be. But to those wise men, they didn't just gaze at the stars like we do on a starry night. And sometimes we see a comet. Sometimes we see the red star over there representing Mars. Or we see some brilliant star come near the moon and we think, what in the world does that mean? They knew what it meant. Now, we do not know whether everybody saw the star or not. Scripture doesn't say. Apparently, when they came to Jerusalem and asked Herod, where is he that is born king? Herod didn't know anything about it. They said, we've seen his star. We've, we've followed him. He would come to worship him. And it was almost as if Herod said, what kind of star are you talking about? So he consulted the scribes. And he said, now you find out where this Messiah or king is to be born. And the scribes searched the scripture. They found Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth a ruler who is to be ruler of my people, whose goings forth have been from ever. And then they found Numbers 24.17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. They came back and reported to Herod, he's to be born in Bethlehem. And the prophet said there would be a star. And so Herod in his fakery and lying said, well, you go down to Bethlehem and find out where this little baby's born so I can come and worship him. He was a liar. He wanted to kill him. And so the wise men went down 
to worship him. Now I want you to notice the wise men took gifts. For a king. Frankincense is like an incense. It burns and the incense goes up. It's a priestly type perfume. And then they brought myrrh. And these men representing that this morning did such a magnificent job in presenting gold and frankincense. And when it came to myrrh, as Lloyd sang that, you could almost hear the pathos in his voice. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume. Breathes a sense of gathering gloom. And that myrrh represented death. And so when the wise men came, they brought gifts for a king. They brought gifts for a priest. And then they brought the frankincense. And then the myrrh. The myrrh, a prophetic sign that this little baby was going to die for our sins. Now that's the story. I want to ask you these questions. Where is he that is born king? King of the Jews. For some... It's just a legend. You know, you go out to the mall and you see the Santa Claus. And I like to go by there and see that great big tree. And see all those kids lined up. They, they must line up a mile long to go in there and say what they tell Santa Claus what they want. And uh, uh, Santa Claus doesn't have a big red coat on this year. He has his suspenders and a work shirt. I guess he's still working trying to get the toys ready. That's a beautiful story. And I'm not sure we should just downplay it and say, oh, it's just a fairy story. There was a real St. Nicholas at one time. And he did give gifts. And I think some of the story about Santa Claus has been developed from the real St. Nicholas that lived centuries ago. But to some, this story about the wise men coming is just a legend like the legend of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Or like the fairy story of Little Red Riding Hood. All across our world, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of our people think that. They don't stop to think, who is he? Or where is he? To some, he's just a legend. Beautiful legend. You know, our missionaries in Japan, Takalana, tell us that many of the Japanese who are of Buddhist or Shinto background can believe in Shintoism and Buddhism and other isms and believe in Christ at the same time because their idea is not exclusive. They think, well, this is another story. It's a beautiful story. And to much of the world, that's what it is. But Jesus himself said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, remarkable words. You say it with me if you know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You don't come the church way. 
You don't come the Buddhist way. You don't come the Baptist way. You don't come the Church of Christ way or the Catholic way. You come through Jesus. Where is he that is born king? To some, a legend. To others, Jesus is still a little baby in a manger. <clears throat> I like the drama we've, we've had tonight. You know, it doesn't end with the manger and with this man being changed because he saw a little baby. It ends with his being changed because he saw beyond the baby. He said, I looked into the very eyes and his eyes looked back at me and I saw beyond that a cross and a sword going through Mary's heart. And I saw a cross and then there's flashed up there a beautiful picture of Christ on a cross. He said, I saw my sins and I knew I needed a Savior and the Savior's come into my heart. Now to many, he's just a babe in a manger. I'm not sure how scriptural it is for us to have just the manger scenes without a cross. This is the story of the incarnation, but the meaning of the incarnation is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He might show us how to get to heaven. And the only way we can get to heaven is through what Jesus did on an old rugged cross for our sins. So the last question is, where is he to us? Is he still just a legend, a beautiful story, and we get all excited about that story and we forget it the rest of the year? Or is he just a little babe in a manger and we have the wonderful stories away in a manger, no room for no crib, so on, all those words about that. They're beautiful songs. Martin Luther, one of the great preachers of all times, wrote Away in a Manger, had it sung for his little boy. And the stories of the incarnation are very, very important. But they don't end at the manger. They don't end with Jesus as a little baby. They hated him when he got here. They tried to kill him down in Bethlehem. Years later, they tried to kill him in, in Nazareth. Nazareth built on the side of the Valley of Jezreel. And there's a cliff there. And Jesus was in Nazareth and they tried to push him over the cliff. He just disappeared because he was, didn't come to die on a cliff. They tried to stone him. And then they did what God and heaven knew would happen and what Jesus knew would happen. They arrested him. They took him out to Calvary. And there between earth and heaven, the sacrifice of eternity was made. And he who knew no sin became sin for you and me. All of our sin was put on him. Every one of our sins, past, present, and future, they were all put on Christ. And he who knew no sin became the accursed thing, the thing of sin. And God looking down on that sin turned his back. And the Lord cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God could not stand to look upon sin. And ladies and gentlemen, if you allow God to look upon your sin, the soul that sinneth it will die. There will be an eternal judgment for your sin. 
But if you'll come to Christ, He's already paid for your sin. Wrapped up in His blood is a pardon. He offers it. You can accept it or reject it. You can say, I'm not ready. Some other day, some other time. Or you can say, yes, I want Him. I want Him as my Savior and my Lord. And when you do that, the King will come and live inside of you. In the Old Testament, they said God is for us, and He was for them. When Jesus came in Bethlehem, they said God is with us, Emmanuel, God is with us. But when the Holy Spirit came, we say God is in us. I want to ask you, is God in you? Is the King that was born in Bethlehem's manger, who died on the cross, who was raised from the dead, is he living in your heart? You say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to get him in my heart. <clears throat> the way we get him in our heart is humility. That's one of the big problems we face. We're filled with pride. No help needed. I can handle this job all by myself. But when we realize that we're a sinner, that sin wraps its icy clutches around us and takes us down, 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 down to an eternal abyss forever away from God, away from the gospel invitation, away from love, where the chief emotion is hate forever. That's what sin does. Well, when you let Jesus come and take over your sins, he's already paid for them. Wrapped up in the blood of Christ is a pardon. He says, here it is. <clears throat> you can be forgiven for your immorality. You can be forgiven for your thievery. You can be forgiven for your infidelity. You can be forgiven for your cursing and profanity. You can be forgiven for your lifestyle. And when you accept that pardon, something begins to happen inside. You don't want to live that kind of lifestyle any longer. You don't want to live a low life. Your want to changes. The other day I was preaching at a funeral. There was a man there who used to be a member of our church. And he joined our church years ago. He was not saved. You see, it's possible to be a, an unsaved church member. <clears throat> and while I was preaching, I, I saw him there. He's been saved since then. He's in church all the time, all the time. Goes to another church in another county. And I said to him, what happened to you? I said, here are all the people. There were, there were scores of unsaved people there. The place was filled. Many of them had told me they were Christians, never go to church. I said, what happened to you? You used to go to church, but you'd come spasmodically. And then something happened. He said, I got saved. And do you know what? He goes to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Because his want to got changed. Has that happened to you? Is there a want to in your heart for Jesus? When he comes in and you accept his pardon, he changes you from the inside out. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Sometimes we have nosedives. But do you know who's there at the end of that nosedive to pick you up? It's Jesus. 
Lloyd sang to us this morning, does Jesus care? Does he care when your way is rugged? Does he care when your heart broken? Does he care in the time of tears? Oh yes, he cares. The Savior I recommend to you today, the King of kings and Lord of lords, loves you and he'll be with you. And when you have a tough time, you're going through some tough times, he'll be there. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And when you come to the hour of death, he's going to take your hand and take you across that river and place you safely in God's hand forever. And oh, what a joy, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. No sorrow there forever. Don't you want him? as your king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God that is so powerful and precious. We pray as we face that question, where is he that is born king? We pray that somebody here will say, I want him as my savior. And I want to come because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. And Father, we pray that some who are here or within the sound of our voice who have been saved but are not really living close to the Lord, that your heart would deal with their heart. The Spirit of God inside would bring conviction and a desire, a want to, to get back to the Lord. We pray that somebody here who has never come to Christ, never accepted that pardon, would do it today. In Jesus' name, amen. What number? 157. Jesus paid it all. Let's stand as we sing. Jesus paid it all. The invitation is open for whosoever will. Would you come? Just come as you are. God bless you as you do that.